we are spending the second half of 2016, right in the middle of it, studying this book of Acts to ask ourselves, are we like the New Testament church? What we see in the book of Acts, specifically from the New Testament church, is that they are a body of believers going out through all, throughout all the known parts of the world, living out this one very mission that Jesus gave them. Just before his ascension back to be with the Father, where he would sit at his right hand, Jesus with his um, apostles looked at them and said, I have one mission for you. I want you to go into the world. Start in your home and incrementally work yourself out into the ends of the earth. And what I want you to do is simply tell people, be witnesses of my resurrection. And the story of the book of Acts is a story or history of how the church has been a church on that mission. Now, we're some 2,000 years separated from this historical uh, account, but we want to be the very same kind of church, a church that's on this mission. If you are not a Christian, I hope that you uh, were able to pay close attention to what, our, uh, what Tim was able to share with you before our communion time. That, in a summary, was the very essence of our message, the gospel, that we are... Yes, weak, we have been, yes, ungodly, and we are classified, yes, as sinners because of our own actions. And although we have been that way, God, through Jesus Christ, has demonstrated his great love that he might send and save us through Jesus. And now we implore all people to believe in him. Well, that's the message that we're carrying out to all people. And so up to this point, that message of the gospel in Acts has brought incredible amounts of conversion. We have seen people all over the place, and we have learned this one idea that the message of the gospel and the story of Christianity knows no barriers to any race, any culture, any place, any class, any gender. The gospel has reached all kinds of people. But up until this point, until Acts chapter 16, the gospel has been uh, preached mainly. The result of conversion has been mainly the gospel being preached in a lot of different ways in personal settings and one-on-one contexts and great demonstrations and great preaching uh, in various different ways to those who have not yet heard the gospel it has been preached but in our story this morning we see an unlikely character receive the gospel in a really unlikely way you see he actually isn't won by being introduced to Paul or to Silas at a synagogue or a prayer meeting or out in the community. He's not one to the gospel and to Jesus Christ because of what he hears Paul and Silas say in their preaching. He is won over by Paul and Silas in their actions, the way that they, you might say, demonstrated the gospel in their life. And so we're going to see Paul and Silas this morning take a great amount of time in their world here to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, to show the gospel how, by how they lived, which sets them up for the opportunity to share with this jailer of the gospel. So let's trace this story and learn three things about how we demonstrate the gospel message. First of all, let's talk about the circumstances, the circumstances that led to this demonstration. Um, if you notice at the very beginning there, verses 20 through about 24, Paul and Silas were not in a great situation. They're facing some difficulty. They had some hostility. There was some misrepresentation going on about them, and they were experiencing great suffering. 
they were misrepresented about a lot of things. Their religion was misrepresented. They were just called to be Jews and they weren't really represented as Christians. Their actions were misrepresented. Uh, what brought this story about, if you read just a few verses before, there was a young girl who was uh, possessed by some spirit, some demon. She was um, a fortune teller, so to speak. And there were men who were taking advantage of this demon-possessed girl who was experiencing this difficulty and using her as, as a, by way of selling her services to other people, the fortune telling. And they were making a lot of money off of her. And after a few days of uh, following Paul and Silas around, this young girl was kind of bothering them. And Paul sends that spirit out of her. And then her owners realized they had lost their income and they were angry at Paul for it. And so they bring Paul and Silas to the crowd and then to the magistrates and they were misrepresenting what Paul and Silas really were doing. You notice their actions are misrepresented. They don't accuse them of ruining their income. They don't accuse Paul and Silas of casting out a demon or a spirit. They don't accuse them of that. What these men accuse Paul and Silas of is simply disturbing the city. They're messing with the country. They're messing with the place in which we live. And so that's what they're accusing them of. And they're verily misrepresenting them. And finally, they're misrepresenting their teachings. In fact, they even say this about Paul and Silas, that their teachings are unlawful. Now, these guys don't say that they don't like them. They don't say that they're not happy about them. They don't say that they're teaching things that are strange or false. What they say is they're teaching things that are not to be accepted, that are unlawful lawful. And because of this misrepresentation, there's a growing number of people against Paul and Silas. Starts with the crowd who's frustrated and begins to, you know, like most crowds, not really know why they're mad or what they're mad. They just want to be mad about something. Good thing times have changed, right? And, uh, and so they're, they're all stirred up and they're frustrated and they don't, probably don't even know why they're mad. And then it comes to the magistrates or the council, those that were in charge. And they tear their clothes as a sign of frustration. And they command that Paul and Silas should be beaten and then thrown into prison. Now, would you all agree that's pretty difficult circumstances for Paul and Silas? Life's not going great for them in this moment. They are being faithful to God. They are in this new town. They are converting. In fact, they reached this place through serious prayer. And so God is leading them to this place. They're attentive to that. And all of a sudden, the people are against them, the circumstances are against them, they're in a difficult, difficult position. The circumstances that led them to being able to demonstrate their faith was not just difficulty. Now that plays a part in it. They, they were experiencing some difficulty, and that's going to play a role, but just having difficult circumstances is not the opportunity that we have to demonstrate the gospel, but really... The opportunity for them to demonstrate the gospel came with the connection they were making to someone who was closely watching them. Now look down at verse 24. You see, they weren't just facing difficult circumstances, but they were making a connection. In verse 24, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 23, it says, when they, get, when they inflicted many blows upon them, they, the magistrates and those that were beating Paul and Silas, threw them into prison, and they ordered the jailer to watch over them or to keep them secure. Now, at this point, they leave. The, the, those that have beaten Paul and Silas, the magistrates, they cast Paul and Silas into prison, and they go to the jailer, the guy that's overseeing the prison, and they say, 
It's your job to keep them here. Now, prison at this time was not, not like the county jail for us where sometimes people are, are taken just to be held, maybe before trial, or uh, they're not sure what's going on, or maybe it's just a couple days they have to stay there to serve. Jail for them or prison for them was the place where they, people were held when they knew that they were going to die. They would hold them for a long period of time. In fact, it was the place where they would take the impoverished and the low life of that society. If you were wealthy and accused of a crime and were going to be in jail or going to be held, you were typically held under what was known as house arrest at this time. And so they grab Paul and Silas, they throw them into this rough place that is incredibly disgusting, and they tell this jailer, we want you to watch him. Now look what the jailer does. This is not by the order of the magistrate. This is not by the order of the police or the guards. This is the jailer in verse 24, it says, having received this order, make sure Paul and Silas don't escape. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison. And then he fastened their feet in the stocks. So who made the decision to take Paul from, you know, there, there's uh, levels. Jail was uh, usually dug out into the ground, and so the first layer was, you know, the first place you would enter into, and then you would take steps and go down farther into the next level, and then typically down deep into the ground. In fact, if you visit Rome, you can go see one of the jails that most people assume that Paul used um, or was in at the end of his life, and he was in one of those places where deep down, almost 12 to 15 feet underground, a ceiling about six or six and a half feet tall, about 30 feet wide and about 12 feet deep. No ventilation, pitch black. Who made the decision for Paul and Silas to be in that place of the jail? The jailer. And when they get there, to get out, they'd have to go through multiple levels of gates and guards and people. But who made the decision to put them in the uncomfortable stalks of their feet? Who made that decision? The jailer. The jailer did. How do you think Paul and Silas treated that jailer? How do you think they interacted with him? He's certainly aware of their circumstances. He knows what's going on. I'm sure that he's aware even of the accusations of why they're there. Maybe he even knows some of the inconsistencies of, of the accusations. <clears throat> and yet he's been given this command and he puts them there. And I'm assuming that, he, that Paul and Silas made a pretty good connection with him. This man was probably a retired military leader. That's typically what they would use. Most likely aware of the charges, watching all of this unfold. And there he is in close proximity, very near to the suffering and the challenges and the circumstances of Paul and Silas. What I want to present to you today to think about is this, that here is the place where we can demonstrate the mission of the gospel not just in having bad circumstances or difficult moments, but with those that are near us when we go through them. This guy is near them. Can you identify anyone in your life that might be near you when you face difficulties? Maybe knows that you have faith, but maybe they don't yet have that kind of faith or maybe um, experience, have, have become a Christian yet. Is there someone who's close enough to you to observe you in your difficult moments that isn't yet a Christian? Circumstances that allow for demonstrating the gospel are not just the events we go through, but the people in close connection to us as we go through them. Okay? Those are the circumstances that let us 
demonstrate the gospel. Number two, let's look at not just the circumstances, but the action of demonstrating. <clears throat> Verses 25 through 28, we see something strange kind of happening with Paul. Paul was probably one of the most frustrating figures for uh, the leaders of this time to deal with. They really couldn't figure out how to shut him up. They couldn't figure out how to frustrate him. They couldn't figure out how to get under his skin. You know, they, they would, um, anything that they did to him, he just was a free man in the sense that he had the gospel of Jesus Christ, so he had a heart that was liberated. His actions with Silas show us how he probably interacted with the jailer when the jailer was dragging him down to the inner cell and binding his feet into those stalks. Their action shows us the way that they were approaching this difficult circumstance. They were men of faith, men of hope, men of love. They were men of optimism, people of resolve, and people that had transcendent peace. Now their actions, you see that they were singing and praying, praying and singing. Up until late into the night, they're sitting in this dark, pitch black dungeon with their feet bound, their backs bleeding and sore, and they're singing and they're praying. Their actions do three things for us. Let me show you. Number one, their actions, first of all, are born out of real faith. Just think about the act of praying. Praying in this moment, Paul was most likely bringing and Silas um, uh, their request to God. God, I pray that you would help us in this moment. Much like the church was praying for Peter in Acts chapter 12 when he was in jail. When Christians go to jail, it's right for people to pray if they're incarcerated for the wrong reasons that they might get out of that situation. And so Paul and Silas are praying to something bigger than themselves that they might get out. But at the same time of their praying, they're not just crying out, God, get us out of here. They're also singing. They're honoring this God, recognizing that in their prayers that have led them to this place, that God has a plan and most certainly he will follow through. So in the midst of their suffering, Here's the actions that are born out of faith. In the midst of their suffering, they demonstrate their trust in something bigger than themselves. Paul's not sitting there scheming, how do I get out of here? What are the things I need to say? Uh, who do I need to talk to? He's not scheming in himself. They trust in something bigger than just their circumstances. Paul hasn't thrown his hands in the air and said, oh, there's nothing I can do about this now. These people have uh, beat me. They've won. I'll probably never get out of here. I'll probably die here. Give up. Whatever. The circumstances, he trusts in something bigger than himself and the circumstances. He trusts in something bigger than even those that have power over him. The magistrates, the people, the jailer. The fact that he is praying and singing is a demonstration that he trusts in something bigger than the people the circumstances in his life. So here's the question. Does your life, when you experience moments of challenge, demonstrate that you trust in someone bigger than yourself, those around you, and your circumstances? Do you have what Paul has, a transcendent, stabilizing peace that says, I know that there is one who is bigger than me, that is greater than me, that works out all things for the good of my life. I know that. And so even though I don't like these circumstances, I can have a peace and a joy that can't be taken from me, even though these circumstances are difficult. Do you see how this demonstrates the message of Jesus Christ without saying a word? Paul was doing that with Silas. 
Actions taken from faith have a way of resonating with people, especially in the world in which we live that is full of people that are skeptical and doubting. Skepticism, skepticism let me say it clearly, is the religion of our day. People naturally are skeptical. And so for people to watch you have a stabilizing, transcendent peacefulness in the midst of your difficulty is demonstrating the message of the gospel without speaking the message of the gospel to them. And Paul was doing that. Secondly, their actions had them prepared. You see, when the earthquake happens, which was actually a common thing uh, in this region of the world, earthquakes happen all the time. Now, what was uncommon is for four levels of gates to open amongst, uh, when that earthquake happened. And then for Paul and Silas to be released from their bonds or their shackles of their feet. For all that to happen is very uncommon, but the fact that these men are praying and singing before this takes place has them prepared in the moment when this earthquake happens. You see, when opportunities come to us, we won't be ready if we're not people that are praying and honoring God. We won't be ready for it. Our minds won't be ready for it. And you notice what happens when the gates open and everyone's free? Who leaves? No one leaves. And why don't they leave? Well, it seems to me that it's because Paul tells them to stay. Because when the jailer is there ready to take his own life, it's Paul, the leader of this whole group of inmates, that screams out and says, don't harm yourself. We, the whole group, are still here. This action of prayer and song has Paul prepared for this moment. No one leaves. It's kind of amazing, right? Why didn't anyone leave? Well, we can assume they listened to Paul, but why would Paul not want anyone to leave? Peter left in Acts chapter 12, right? Angel comes, lets him out. There he is. He goes back to the place. Why didn't he leave? Well, who was on his mind? Who do you think was on Paul and Silas's mind? After being drugged down to that inner prison, shackled up, Paul probably showing some graciousness to him, the jailer. And this moment might have been the highlight moment for Paul and Silas, but the very same moment was the nightmare for the jailer. And Paul and Silas had the jailer on their mind. They're thinking about him. And so prayer and worship have a way of reminding us what is true about God, what is true about what we have from him, and it frees us to not see every opportunity as how we can take advantage of it for ourselves, but to see opportunities for how we can love and serve other people. Do you see how prayer and worship is humbling Paul and Silas to bring them into the realization that they are okay? Regardless of what happens, they are okay, and now they're free to love and serve other people. So when this earthquake happens, they pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, if we leave, this ruins that jailer's life. He won't go home to his family. He'll be dead or he'll take his own life. And they pause, and they're ready to serve him. Thirdly, their actions were born out of faith. Their actions have them prepared. Their actions have major impact. You notice the prisoners were listening to them. It says, I believe, in verse 25. The prisoners were listening to them sing and to pray. No wonder they listened to Paul when Paul said, don't go anywhere. They were listening. And Paul and Silas, did they know that the other prisoners were listening to them? No way. It was pitch black. They were all the way in the deep hole. They had no idea if people were sleeping, if people were uh, busy doing something else, if they were ignoring them, doing their own thing. These guys were singing and praying. You never, ever know who's listening. It's pitch black where they are. They can't see a thing. 
And yet these guys are listening. So their singing and their praying had impact on these prisoners, but it also had impact on this jailer. When Paul screams out, don't harm yourself, the jailer, probably surrounded by several guards that reported to him, he was probably the one in charge of this entire place, unashamedly grabs a light and he runs into the cell. And he's trembling and shaking. He falls down before Paul. And he comes to them. He knows their charges, but he sees their faith. And these people, Paul and Silas, have something that he wants. Now, he knows that these guys are prisoners, but he wants the kind of freedom that they have that transcends their jail cell. And so here's the point for our action. How we live in our difficult moments is what gives us opportunity to serve those when they come into their difficult moments those that might not be Christians, those that might not have faith like you, how you and I live in observation of those when we are having our difficult moments gives us the opportunity to serve those when they face their difficult moments. And when we have that opportunity, how should we take that? Look what Paul does. Number three. So we've seen the circumstances. We've seen the action. Let's look at the opportunity for, of demonstrating this ministry. There are three things that take place, three things that happen uh, that Paul does to take advantage or strike while the iron's hot, to take advantage of this opportunity in which he has demonstrated the gospel and now he has a chance to teach it. So the guy comes in verse 29, the jailer, and he falls down before Paul and he's trembling. He's shaking. He's scared to death. And here's what Paul does in verse 30. Uh, down in verse 30, first of all, he hears his question. The first thing Paul does when he has an opportunity to preach the gospel is he listens to this man's question. In verse 30, the man says, um, pardon me, I'm, there we go. Uh, then he, the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out and he said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas pause for a moment. They don't say, okay, now we've got your attention. The earth has quaked. God obviously wants us to be out of here. You need to listen to us. They pause for a moment. They recognize this man's incredibly vulnerable moment. And they listen to his question. They understand it. This man is asking not just, um, you know, we, we sort of interject a lot of religion into this text. Uh, I'm sorry, into this particular question. This man knows that these people are people of faith. They know that, this, uh, that Paul and Silas have been praying to and singing to a God that they trust in, that has given them joy and peace. They know that. This man is recognizing that this situation is a no-win situation. And he wants to understand how he can have what Paul and Silas has. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And he's saying, what must I do or how can I be delivered from this difficult moment? Now, here's what they do. Number one, they listen to his question. We've got to be people that when those, are facing, when those people in our lives are facing difficulty, that we ask and listen to their questions, to what's on their mind, what they're really struggling with. Number two, Paul and Silas offer and explain Jesus. Look what Paul says in verse 31. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he says one sentence to kind of calm this guy down, to talk him back off the ledge, so to speak, to say, listen, there is a way for you to understand what you can do. Let me tell you. He says in verse 31, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. 
Now, that is not the full gospel message or the gospel presentation. What that is, is uh, that word believe means to let me persuade you with the gospel. Let me show you how the gospel, of me the message of Jesus Christ can lead you to what you need. He asks him to be persuaded about Jesus. And what he's saying in this very sense is this, that the thing you're asking for, the thing you want most, Jesus will be the answer. But he doesn't just stop there with, uh, hey, Jesus is the answer. I promise it will all be okay. He goes on to explain him. Look down at verse 32. It says that when they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night, they washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. You see, Paul didn't stop by just saying, you've got to know who Jesus is. Believe Jesus. Everything will be fine. He goes on to explain Jesus. He spoke the word to him. And here's how he did it. Most certainly, because you see this in all of Paul's teachings. Number one, he tells them what is true about Jesus. He tells them what is true about what Jesus did. Now this is detached from anything that they need to do. This is just historical gospel facts. God has loved us. God has saved us. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's who Jesus was. He explains who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But then he also says what Jesus can do for you. See, the thing you're looking for, the thing you ultimately want, has already been purchased and won in Jesus Christ. And Paul explains that to him. So this opportunity brings Paul the, the chance to hear the question, to offer and explain Jesus. But lastly, Paul's given the opportunity to share and receive joy. Look down in verse 34. It says, then he brought them up to his house, and he, the jailer, set food before them. And he, the jailer, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's amazing, right? There's Paul, Paul and Silas demonstrating the message of the gospel through their life. Difficult circumstances wake the jailer up to ask, what do I need to do to have what you have to be okay? They offer and they explain Jesus. And so they're giving to the jailer, and yet they begin to receive back from the jailer. The jailer, at great risks, risk, takes them away from the prison, leaves the guards and probably the other prisoners, takes Paul and Silas to his home, sets food before them, feeds them. And you read later in the story, he has to take them back. But these guys that night shared a table with the jailer and his family. They had joy, they had peace. They had fellowship. They gave to the jailer and the jailer's family. And the jailer and his family gave back to Paul and Silas. That's what happens when we live the mission of the gospel, are ready when the, when, when the opportunity comes, teach people about Jesus, and then have a deeper connection with them. So before we go, here are three things. How can you obey what we're talking about today? How can you obey this? Number one, prayerfully become aware of those that are near you who may be watching your life, especially when you face difficult circumstances. When you drive home today, take a quick moment to pray and reflect and think. Who are the people that are in your life, coworkers, um, employers, uh, friends that might not be Christians that watch your life? Pray about that and ask God, who are these people? Pray for them. Number two, here's how you can obey. Reflect on whether you are facing your current circumstances with faith in God that gives peace and joy 
or fear that leads to worry and anxiety? How are you facing your circumstances right now? Because the key to living the mission is not having the right circumstances. It's being faithful in your circumstances, whatever they may be. So ask yourself and reflect, how are you facing your circumstances right now? With faith that gives joy and peace or fear that leads to worry and anxiety? Which way are you facing your circumstances? And number three, take very serious the responsibility of knowing, first, who Jesus is, second, what Jesus did, and third, why that even matters to you. See, if I were to venture a guess right now, most of you in here know who Jesus is, maybe vaguely, maybe intimately. Believe that he was the son of God that came, incarnated into the world 2,000 years ago, lived, was known to be a prophet and a teacher, a good man that did not do, um, did not sin, did not live wrongly. But yet, out of jealousy, whether you believe in him or not as your savior, out of jealousy, people recognize that he was crucified on a Roman cross. But what did that cross really mean? And when you begin to understand not just who Jesus was, a perfect man that was willing to come for you, but what it means to you to understand that cross was him going there as a perfect person, willing to absorb the wrath of God so that you might have forgiveness in the sight of God and have him. Fellowship with God forever. And when you begin to understand that it's with fellowship with God that you are reconnected to the one that gives you peace, that gives you joy, that gives you life, is where you find the fullness of the gospel and the transformation that's found in it. And if you don't have that, you've got to start there. Know who Jesus is, what he has done, and what it means to you. And when you get that, you'll be able to, able to live the gospel and then speak the gospel when the opportunities come. And I want to encourage you to do that. If you need to answer to the gospel, you can come as we stand and sing.